Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Special guest today. We don't often have people coming back, but sometimes when they have a great deal to say that carries prominence and importance, it is our pleasure to invite those people back. One such gentleman is Jeff Clayton, the executive director of the American Bail Coalition. Welcome to Seldom Said, Jeff. Thanks, Robert. It's great to be out on Long Island. It's our pleasure having you. You've been here before, and we've talked about your background. So for those who haven't heard or perhaps listened a while back, can you go in a little bit of personal background, where you've been, what you've done, what brought you to this time and place? Absolutely. So, you know, I grew up as a high school and college debater, debate coach. I was in debate for all of my adult life. Uh, went to graduate school and then, you know, eventually to law school. Uh, practiced law for about four years. Uh, and then I represented the um, chief justice, last two chief justices of the Colorado Supreme Court for about five years. Uh, worked in the Governor Ritter administration for a year. Uh, and then actually today actually marks my four-year uh, anniversary of starting uh, with the American Bail Coalition, uh, you know, which is a trade association of insurance companies uh, that underwrite criminal bail bondsmen. One might take the position that we live in a time and place in this country where we're devoid of debate. Have you found the tenor of conversation on the level of business of bail different? No, I don't think so. I think it's the same thing that we're seeing around the country, which is, you know, we're debating headlines and taglines and we're never getting below the surface as to what the actual issues are. And I think it's just we're fighting with headlines. We're fighting with uh, for bail, for example, he can't afford his bail. So that's terrible. And we have to do something or, uh, you know, the counter argument would be, well, if we let everybody out, then they're going to commit a bunch of crimes. Well, that's not really what's going on. And so I do think bail is just like every other issue that we're seeing right now, particularly in criminal justice, where it's just so politicized and so surface level that I worry that we're never going to make any real progress. So would I be drawing an incorrect conclusion to say that you fear permanent damage being done to the system? Yeah, at this point, I think there is um, some damage being done, whether it's permanent or not. I don't know because we've been through these cycles of bail reform, you know, over um, generations. But there's certainly academic commentators who are saying that this version of bail reform risks making the system worse by essentially you know, driving discrimination kind of even further below the surface than perhaps it is right now. And that these solutions that are being proposed right now were the same you know, solutions proposed in the 70s and 80s that have led to this uh, generational mass incarceration that we've seen since 1970. When one approaches people from different parts of the country, there are differing views as to the extremists of bail, I have been encountering many people who seem to feel it's local responsibility, it's state responsibility, the federal government has no right to get involved. How do you respond to that? Well, I think you're right on the federal government side. They should not be dictating state bail policy. Obviously, they have their own big no money bail system that's expensive. Uh, you know, they lock up three out of four defendants with no bail. And I, I don't think anybody would say that that's the model that state and local governments uh, want to do. You know, most bail policy is governed by state law, so that's where it starts. And certainly local jurisdictions have discretion to do a lot of different things that they would want to do. And I think that's a good thing. 
And, uh, you know, judges in those jurisdictions can decide, you know, what's the appropriate bail and what alternatives to bail are there going to be for, you know, mental health cases and people who truly can afford bail that are indigent uh, that have problems that we need to address. And I think that's where the locals can make the decisions the best as to, you know, whether those resources uh, are, are better spent on this or, or whatever other criminal justice reform that they may, they may be looking at at the time. Recently did a program on the sanctuary movement and the argument of the guest who was prominent in the movement was that people need to be educated. They simply don't know. They have no conception, no idea. Do you feel that you need to educate your clientele to the extremists of bail? We do. I mean, it's not only just the, our clients, but it's the public in general. I mean, most people's understanding of bail is they had a friend that they had to put some money down for. Of course, you know, in my case, I had a, uh, a friend who was uh, busted for public intox and we had to scrape together a couple hundred bucks to go bail him out some years ago. Uh, but most people, it's the monopoly, get out of jail free card or, you know, I've had some to bail somebody out. People don't understand how the system works and why it's important and what the dynamics are, not just in terms of get out of jail be in jail, but it's all the other things that could happen in between those two extremes, things like ankle monitors and supervision by the state. There's a lot of restrictions of liberty going on, and people just look at it as you're in jail, you're out, and that's pretty much it. And so, yeah, we do have to spend a lot of time not only educating clients about how the bail system works, but the public as well as we get into these debates about bail reform. This is not meant to sound pessimistic, but do you feel it belongs in a classroom at the high school and college level? An understanding of the process. I think so. I think criminal justice is a poorly understood uh, topic. And as I've said on uh, previous shows, and I'll just use this example again, as you know, when I became an attorney, I got a cold call and it was a bail call. And I went into the senior partner's office not knowing what to do about it. Uh, and the answer was called Joe Beanie, the bail bondsman, right? He handles it. I didn't even know what bail was. I didn't know how it worked. And of course, I graduated from an accredited law school and I was a pretty good student. So I think we just don't really put uh, much focus on how the system works. And I think the other thing that we don't do is talk about why people got here in the first place. You know, people don't get into the system, you know, because the system itself tries to suck them in. They get sucked in for other reasons. And I think as we've talked about before, that could be, you know, kind of the legacy of slavery that we've never fixed, that there is discrimination and we just haven't seemed to get it to to been to get over that hurdle. Um, so, you know, I but I think, you know, there's probably um, a need for expanded, not only civics instruction, but the criminal justice system across high school and colleges. When you speak to racial politics and the racial issue, is there any argument to be made for an affirmative action type program for the bail system? You know, I think there probably is, but I, I, I'm not sure that it would be based on race more than based on need, based on poverty more so than uh, race, although we know that, you know, sort of poverty and race correlate in this criminal justice space quite a bit. You know, we've advocated for uh, an indigent bail fund to allow bail agents to basically supervise people at somebody else's expense, whether it's a you know private foundation or the state. And obviously, you got the bail project down at the University of California, Los Angeles Law School, ran by former um, Brooklyn public defender um, Robin Steinberg, who's trying to do um, this work as well. And, and of course, the state of New York is the only state that's regulated um, the practice of charitable bail, charitable bail funds, uh, which we support. And we think that's one way uh, for the system to address uh, this problem. And it's really, it's really, you know, if you're poor, then you don't get access to bail, then we're going to put you on supervision. Well, I think the bail fund argument would be, the charitable bail fund argument would be, no, you're poor, 
But you should still have the right to bail like everybody else. We shouldn't trammel your other liberties simply because you're indigent. So I, I definitely think there's room for, for programs like that. Perhaps it's time to give a little bit of a pricey history of the American Bail Coalition, what it's about, where it's been, and what it's going. Sure. It really dates to a predecessor organization that dates back to 1992. But really what it is is an association of underwriters of bail um, agents around the country uh, to put in guidelines on how they conduct their business and to make sure that, you know, if somebody does take off on multi-million dollar bonds that they're backed, that they're guaranteed and that the state gets paid and that there's an incentive uh, for them uh, to return the suspects to court should they flee the jurisdiction or flee uh, the country. Really, what we do is try to find best practices, try to uh, look at policies that seem to work, uh, that fit within you know our ability to provide the services we think we should be able to provide, and that you know depends on the state, of course. But that's really what we do, and you know, at least since I've been around, and now this marks four years, it's really should all bail agents and bail monetary bail be eliminated has been the conversation that we've had for the last four years, and I think. Now we're getting to the point where I think a lot of people are saying maybe that's not a good idea. What would be something of primary nature to you, something you would like to see done under the pressure of the moment? Well, it's really due process. I mean, you know, we've we've had litigation after litigation after litigation, and it's all been because the process is too slow, because we can get arrested and we can sit and we can not get out of jail. And, you know, we worked on legislation with the ACLU of Colorado, which is going to become law. Because in in my hometown of Denver, if you get arrested and you're going to get a release on your own recognizance, you're still going to sit there for 24 to 36 hours because of administrative delays in the process. And so that to me is the genesis of why this all started in the first place, which was a bail schedule had set a bail for somebody and they couldn't see a judge for some period of time, in some cases weeks. And people are just sitting there and all of a sudden it's 2015 and why is everybody sitting there for so long? So if I could push anything in the bail space right now, it would be due process. And I think the second thing that I would push, and I think you know, the ACLU when they opposed the Bail Reform Act of 1984 said that the number one way to fix all problems in the bail system is speedy trial. In other words, shrink the time periods. That means people are on supervision less, they're in jail less time, and we just move these cases along faster uh, would be the second thing. If we would talk about speedy trials and extrapolating some of those circumstances so that people be aware of what they're experiencing, is there a time period where the attorney-client privilege is extended to explain to the accused what road they should take and then have that individual rationally choose? You know, it really varies on the state. I think right-to-counsel issues in bail are huge and right-to-counsel issues at the front end of a case, right? From the period, from the time between arrest to uh, the time of arraignment or first appearance, um, a lot of people don't get counsel, so they don't know what to do. And a lot of states... You have to ask for your bail to be reviewed. Otherwise, a judge isn't going to do that. Well, most defendants don't understand that. And so right to counsel, I guess I would add to my list as as, uh, as another important one, is advising people as to what their rights are. And, you know, we've seen some efforts in that in some states to try to give uh, defendants objective information. Because if the state, uh, you know, if the county has a pretrial services program, they come to you and say – you could be on pretrial services. You don't have to postpone. But what they may not tell you is all the fees that you're going to have to pay for your own supervision and all the other restrictions on your liberty that would occur were you to go that route. And I think having counsel you know, early in a case helps defendants understand you know, what their rights are and what the best course of action is for them. One case that has repeatedly been mentioned in the news 
And I might get the numerical coefficient wrong, the Central Park 9 or 7, not entirely sure which number it was, but in point of fact, there was the incident of a group of minority students who were accused of beating and sexually assaulting a jogger. It seemed as if they were lost in the malaise of the system without contact with anyone who could tell them in which direction to look and simply accused of being guilty, found guilty by their silence, and then sentenced. Is that some sort of malfeasance that you've experienced in a great measure? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen that in New York too. I mean, we've uh, you know the big bail case that's always thrown in our faces, the Khalif Browder case, right? And the guy spent three years in Rikers and uh, four hundred some days in solitary confinement, later to commit suicide due to the horrors and you know beaten by guards and starved and all this sort of thing. But the question that I always wanted to ask is, who waived speedy trial, and why did they waive speedy trial, and when did this all occur, and why did any lawyer let any juvenile sit in an adult facility for three years pending trial, and so. It is a problem. Um, and I think, like I said, the right to counsel and the, the idea that we want to pay for public defenders a lot of times just isn't a popular move. But actually, it makes the system run better because they're represented by counsel and the, and the, and the lawyers know what to do and the lawyers uh, can help them figure it out. Do you feel that bail reform, Jeff, should go hand in glove with prison reform? Not really. I think they're separate issues. I think, you know, we kind of have the pre-conviction part of this and the post-conviction part of this. For my money, I think all the money we spend on pre-conviction, we should spend on post-conviction. Or we should spend that money diverting people out of the system. So, you know, you look at your uh, drug courts and things like that, where if we know the person has a substance problem and they're just getting into the system, if we can get them out at the front end and spend the money on that, that's much better uh you know, spending than trying to supervise them and doing all this other stuff uh, to them and doing bail reform and paying for it. Um, you know, it's it's much better to do an intervention at the back end of a case. The other thing is you can't force somebody into treatment for mental health, substance abuse or anything else until they've been convicted constitutionally. And so you have no leverage on anybody pretrial generally other than their own fear that they're going to get convicted and go to prison. On the prison reform issue, you know, I haven't studied it as much. What I can say is that some of the research I've read, uh, particularly coming out of Rice University, suggests that this system of labeling people as dangerous over time and supervising them over time is like a ratchet because people become more dangerous over time. The longer they're in the system, they're more dangerous as time goes on. They know, There is no remorse and there is no – they become less dangerous or they get over it because even if they do, the risk assessment tools are still going to say that they're dangerous. And so I think that – is probably a driver of, of why we've had mass incarceration uh, and the expansion, the dramatic expansion of probation and parole in this country, which is really um, setting people up to fail, uh, you know, in, in a way that I, I don't think is good, you know, for this country. Extending that a step further, can we then say that there should be some sort of developmental program for? younger individuals, adolescents, persons who are of age to understand what's going on in their lives uh, and that should in some in some point be connected to the bail situation. I think so and I think that's the whole that's the whole game in criminal justice is how do we keep people from getting into the system? Cuz once you get in it's really hard to get out. You know, some people will age out and all this sort of thing, but the reality is you know, the, um, you know, young males in these bad neighborhoods, they get ensnared uh, and they can't get out. And we all know that. And, you know, we're better off to 
try to stop that than we are to reform the system, reform the criminal justice system, because we just need to stop people from getting in there in the first place. And when Trump, you know, got elected, I said, you know, if, I, if it was me, I would be, um, you know, running a bulldozer over the south side of Chicago and and and, and making it right and uh, and spending and investing uh, in those neighborhoods and, you know, getting these kids on the right path, because that's the only solution. That's the only solution that really is probably going to work. A solution that's been proposed is this extemporaneous idea of what extremis is and what basically an assessment should be. Can you describe this philosophy of bail assessment? Yeah, so these risk assessment algorithms have been around you know, for 20, 30 years. Um, really, it's group data. They run regression analysis. They find correlations between certain factors. They make assumptions and they come up with a list of factors and weights for those factors. And then they score people. And then they'll put them into, you know, California's new system is going to be three categories, low, medium, and high. Sometimes it'll be a, you know, one through 10, one through five uh, system. And that can have a dramatic impact on what your bail and conditions of release are. And so in Colorado, I'll give this example, is in one county, if you're – it's one through four, four being the highest risk. If you're four, 84 percent of those uh, people are going to get what's called a cash-only bond, which means you can't use a bail agent to post that. The effect of that is that the risk category fours – are spending more time in jail. They're not getting out of jail when the threes probably are. And so if you're on this little margin line between three and four and you're one factor higher in four, you could you could literally be staying in jail solely because of the algorithm. We're approaching the uh, first break in the program. When we come back, it would be interesting talking about some of the cases you've been involved with, Walker versus Georgia and so forth. You've written uh, some interesting commentary on Holland versus Rosen, some things that really uh, relate to where we should go and how far we have to go. It would seem that this is a discussion with a middle and no end. It's a discussion in search of a beginning. When we come back, uh, we'll be talking about these issues with Jeff Clayton, the executive director of the American Bail Coalition. My name is Robert, and the program is, of course, seldom said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Mr. Jeff Clayton, the executive director of the American Bail Coalition. Jeff, going back to the idea of risk assessment, it would seem in your description of it that there are no subtleties at all that can be incorporated on the computer. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't I don't think these fact this, these things work one and the factors they consider are in many ways illogical and sometimes even discriminatory. I mean, are we really going to say that because, you know, you got arrested uh, at age 15 that, that you're going to be higher risk than somebody who didn't, even if you didn't get convicted? And I think, you know, one of the best examples I can give of that was a, a staffer of a congressman from the south side of Chicago said, well, you know, I was caught – my mom got a new uh, moped and I was caught joyriding on it when I was 13 uh, and I got pulled over and I got arrested. Of course, I you know didn't get charged and everything was fine. But are you telling me that I'm high risk f- for the rest of my life because of that? And the answer was yes. Uh, and so like I said, there's no way to undo anything that happens under these risk assessments and I think – what we've seen is that judges can do it better, and even one study, um, you know, went online and had random people online predict equally as well as the algorithm. So I just don't think it does us any good. Uh, and of course, you know, all the negatives that have come out about it suggest that maybe it's doing more harm than it's doing good. 
becomes almost higher education for a person who wants to make a career out of crime. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess you just need to figure out which factors not to have so that you can keep it going. (laughs) The case of Walker versus Georgia, we've talked about it before, but it's an incredibly interesting case. And every time one thinks it's finished, there's another page turned. Can you bring us up to date? Well, this time I can conclusively say it's finally over. Um, So Walker versus uh, Calhoun, Georgia was a case where Mr. Walker was public in talks uh, uh, several nights in a row, uh, walking in a busy highway. Uh, arrested largely because of, you know, he was a threat to himself. But the city of um, Calhoun, Georgia had a bond schedule. It was a $160 bond. Uh, and as I said, you know, he didn't get before a judge, I believe, for like seven or eight days uh, because his arrest fell on a holiday weekend. Uh, and the fight there was always over. How quickly was the time frame to be to get a review um, in front of a judge from a bail schedule? And of course, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals held on a 2-1 decision that the city's new bail policy of having a review within 48 hours and having some bonds on some of these uh, cases was constitutional, which uh, was then taken up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court denied cert, which basically means they're letting the 11th Circuit decision stand. And that doesn't mean the issue's over because there's a couple of cases going out in California that could go the other way and that one of which has gone the other way. And so maybe the Supreme Court eventually uh, we'll take up this issue. But for now, across the 11th Circuit, and, and obviously since the 5th Circuit has come to the same conclusion, it's probably good law that you can have a bail schedule as long as you get to see a judge within 48 hours. So there's been something positive that's come from the case that you would hope is long term. Sure. And obviously, you know, when I declared victory, uh, you know, I was attacked. But the but the response from the other side was, well, we made significant progress on this case. And I said, I agreed. I agree with you. And since 2015, uh, you know, when the first case was filed and even when this case was filed and the new um, order came out of the city of Clanton case in 2016, that's what we've been advocating for, because that makes sense. And we've actually been you know, trying to push it a little bit further and look at Florida where they're doing uh, these reviews within 24 hours. Uh, and I was at the Uniform Laws Commission panel on this, and I pushed for the 24 hours. And I basically got laughed out of the room uh, because they just said, we don't have resources. We can't do that. And I said, well, why is the state of Florida able to do it? But nobody else is. I don't know the answer to that. But I think pushing for due process in this case, you know, something that we've been doing for years uh, and, it, and is a victory for both sides, really. It has been argued that algorithms are a means to equivocate the differences racially, ethnic, gender, do you buy a, an algorithm as some sort of executive construct that could solve things in that fashion? I really don't, um, and I never have. I mean, my simple view of this in 2015 when I took this job is how can you take a picture of the past, pigeonhole people into that, and expect anything to change? Uh, and that's what these really do is they're, they're based all on past data uh, from historical data that could go back 20, 30 years uh, as this is how bail has worked, and so we're just you know forcing people – um, into these categories. Obviously, 100 national civil rights groups have come out saying we think there's racial uh, problems, there's problems with um, racial bias and other biases in these. Uh, what I've been discovering state after state, county after county, is that a lot of people never even bothered to ask the question. In my home state, again, I'll, Colorado, I'll give as an example that you know this algorithm was developed in 2012, 2013. Uh, as of right now, as of today, nobody has tested it for bias. Nobody has even asked whether it's biased, and there is no standard that anybody would use to evaluate it for bias. And that's typical. I mean, that's we've seen that 
you know, throughout the country that there's really only been one or two of these algorithms that have ever been evaluated uh, for bias. You know, the Arnold Foundation tool, of course, they did their own analysis. And then, uh, you know, the Compass Project, which was done by ProPublica. But that's it. And I think the, the, the fact that we're not even asking the question um, should tell us that, you know, if we put, turn this rock over, I, I'm pretty sure what we're going to find is not something that we like. So I would assume that you're taking the position that we haven't even found a solution and we don't even know the questions to ask for the methodology. That's right. And that was the, the problem, you know, if you followed what happened up in Idaho, um, you know, what, what the question was, what standards should we apply? Should we say it has to be free of bias? Should we say it can't magnify bias? And then, you know, even amongst academics, there's the moderator regression approach. There's the error rate balance test. There's other, you know, ways that we could say, you know, this is, is or isn't biased or is or doesn't make the system worse, but there's just no general agreement on on what this should even look like right now, which is kind of scary when, you know, jurisdictions are moving to say we can replace bail using these computers and we haven't even gone through um, that analysis yet. Perhaps then it is time to start talking about California and SB 10. It's been in the newspapers in the East Coast. There is a different tenor in looking at it here than it is in some parts of the country. How would you describe the controversy? Well, you know, because it was what's called mushroom legislation, which means it pops up in the middle of the night real quick before the session ends is what they call it in Sacramento, is that nobody knew what was coming. And of course, several years ago, you know, we said, hey, what are you going to do about preventative detention? What's the issue there? Which way are you going to go on that? And where are you going to go on these algorithms? And we didn't really know until the 11th hour. And what we found out is they went big. They went to the system. They went to the federal system. Algorithms are going to the risk assessment algorithms are going to drive everything in the California system. You're low, you're medium, you're high, and that's going to drive everything that's going to happen uh, in California. Of course, what happened, you know, obviously after the legislation, as the legislation was going through, I mean, over 50 civil rights groups were opposing it, uh, and you know, we were talking to um, San Francisco Public Defender Jeff Adachi and others about how to stop it, and so I think. What happened was, you know, there had to be some solution and this was, you know, to go to the federal system was a solution. Um, but I don't think it's right for the state of California. And I don't I don't think um, that a lot of these groups or even the public is going to buy into this idea that we're just going to use these algorithms. And we've seen that. I mean, we've had some folks down at a meeting in Los Angeles um, County uh, last week to talk about this issue. And the only thing everybody in the room could agree on was that these algorithms shouldn't be used. And so I think the movement against Senate Bill 10 and the entire contract of, construct of Senate Bill 10 is going the other way. Would you argue then that Senate Bill 10 uh, in regard to the 2020 election is dead in the water? Well, that you never know because of the, you know, the titles of the initiatives and all this sort of thing and you know, voter confusion and how, how, much is, how much is the industry and others willing to invest in a campaign to get the word out, you know? And so, you know, it remains to be seen, but I, I you know, the press coverage that's coming out and on the merits, I think, uh, you know, it's definitely there. And it's just a question of whether the voters will uh, will look at it. And of course, you know, we've got other ballot initiatives going at the same time, right, to roll back Amendment 47 and 57, some of these criminal justice reforms that happened over the last five years. And so, you know, where do the voters feel uh, on it? But, you know, in doing, you know, uh, at least one focus group, at least, on, and I kind of heard secondhand, but, you know, crime was never brought up by anybody in Southern California is the problem. The, the number one Number one and two issues are homelessness and affordable housing. Nobody brought up criminal justice. Nobody even talked about bail reform until, you know, we brought it up. So we'll see. So then you're a singular lobbying. 
Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, there's a campaign that's formed that's not, you know, affiliated with the American Bail Coalition, but we sponsored it. And so they're, you know, they have political consultants who will evaluate, you know, what the election looks like and what the best opportunities are. But, you know, hopefully the voters will will vote it down and we can uh, go back to the drawing board with the legislature and try to find something that works. Given all that we're talking about then and the issue of bail reform and the changes, how effective is an attempt to be objective on these issues? We live in such a highly charged, politicized atmosphere. How much are you affected by the surroundings, the vibe, the emotion, the passion? I mean, it's it's everywhere. And, and, you know, for me, it's just basically the accusation that you're here because of money. You don't care about the bail system. You don't care about anything but the bottom line, which is false. Um, I look at businesses as corporate citizens who are supposed to do the right thing and not, you know, uh, try to just expand market share simply because we could. And I tell people in a lot of states, my job is not to expand or protect absolutely the market share that we have. It's to try to, you know, fit us into the right part of the system and make the difference um, you know, that we can. And of course, you, you know, you're on one side or the other right now. You can't be on both sides. And that's really hard um, right now is that you're just, you're always painted into a corner. And of course, for us, it's, you know, we're painted into the Trump camp that we feel that we just, you know, we want to make money off people and we want to be hard on crime and all that kind of thing. And that's really not what's going on right now is the best message and the best fight that we're having is basically by recycling the message that the ACLU and others used to fight the Bail Reform Act of 1984. And that's what's winning the day. It doesn't have anything to do with hard on crime, soft on crime right now. Uh, it has everything to do with with civil liberties. And so we're just sticking to those arguments, even though you know we're being painted as, uh, as something else. How often then uh, do you have access to media outlets where there's an objective judgment of what you're doing? You know, I I think most of them are pretty fair. I mean, certainly, you know, we were quoted uh, widely in the Associated Press last week on the bailout for Mother's Day. Uh, and I thought we got fair treatment. Um, I think, you know, we, at least I and the American Bail Coalition, we are the kind of the spokesperson uh, for the industry. And as time has gone on, I think we've established our credibility that, you know, we're not going to just, you know, throw out a bunch of talking points that, that don't mean anything, that we're going to come with real information and, and real data. And so generally, I think, you know, we've gotten a pretty fair shake. And certainly, you know, sometimes when you, um, you know, you fly out to Los Angeles to be on a major network program and you uh, do an interview for two hours and they use 10 seconds of it, it's frustrating. But, you know, if you don't put yourself out there, uh, nobody's going to listen to what you're saying. And we have a little saying, you know, you, you can't win the game sitting in the bleachers. Not that I would want to make this interview a, a type of paper chase, but in the case of Holland versus Rosen, some issues have come up. Yeah, and so really the question there and what we're seeing, the legacy of Holland versus Rosen, of course, we didn't get over the line on that. And the issue there was, uh, you know, does somebody have a right to monetary bail? And when does that end under the Eighth Amendment? What, what is the limit in terms of when the government can deny bail? That's an unanswered question in this country. And to me, that's where the real um, work needs to be done, is challenging non-monetary holds and basis to hold people in jail pending trial without offering them the right to bail. And of course, in 1984, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court said that this holding people without bail was a regulatory exception that's supposed to be limited to certain high-level cases. Well, that's not what we're seeing around the country right now. We're seeing it used in misdemeanor cases. We're seeing the Harris County Houston misdemeanor criminal court at law judges actually putting out a policy of preventative detention. And so to me, that's... Uh, that's probably the number one issue in terms of bail that, that we need to look at 
um, going forward. The uh, plaintiffs in the Holland case decided not to pursue an interlocutory decree. Could you explain what that is and then in point of fact argue for or against why they did not? Yeah, and they they really – they filed an appeal and they went up and they actually got denied by the U.S. Supreme Court. And so um, as to legal strategy, I guess I don't really have an opinion. I'm just not sure that Mr. Rosen was the right plaintiff because he got in a violent activity. He got into a violent fight. It wasn't really, um, I guess, good as good of a case as it could have been. The other thing is he, he waived his right to bail. I mean, he accepted the terms of his release and then later came back and tried to sue. And that generally doesn't work uh, very well. But I, what I do think is that this whole idea that somehow U.S. versus Salerno allows for the type of preventative detention we're seeing in this country, I just don't think is the case. But I think everybody's been asleep at the wheel. And a good example of that is the state of Missouri. I mean, they changed their constitution uh, almost 20 years, more than 20 years ago, to say there's a right to bail, except if there's not, Uh, except if somebody, quote, poses a danger to the community, then the judge can deny bail altogether. Well, first of all, that's an unconstitutional standard. And second of all, they've never really Stop to think about what that actually means, uh, other than it just gives them carte blanche ability to just lock people up without bail. So the legacy of Holland is that, yes, Holland wasn't the right plaintiff, but Holland's arguments at a certain level, legally and also on a policy level, you know, kind of makes sense that this whole, you know, are we going to trammel people's other liberties versus bail? Um, you know, we need to calculate that uh, as we're setting bail. Is that an issue for a politician to run on in your own home state? I think you could run on preventative detention. I think running on bail reform right now is is, is a loser issue. Um, I don't, you know, I I don't I haven't seen anybody gain some kind of a political career boost off of running off off this issue. Whether it's judges trying to take us out or anybody else trying to run on this issue, I think preventative detention would be a good issue to run on. I think the risk assessment algorithm, not just in bail, but the system in general, it's the number one issue in criminal justice right now. I mean, if you, you know, any media outlet we want to talk to, they want to talk about this. Everywhere we go, everybody wants to talk about, do these risk assessment algorithms work? Are they biased? How do we fix them? That's that's the number one issue. So those are, I'd be running on preventative detention and getting rid of, you know, get limiting preventative detention, getting some more certainty in, you know, how we're going to use it. And then looking at these risk assessment algorithms is what I'd run on. Many states uh, seem to be going toward the right when it comes to this issue. Idaho is one. Can you speak to that issue? Is this geographical? I don't think so. I I think, um, you know, there, you know, the original legislation said that, uh, you know, the algorithm couldn't be – had to be shown to be bias-free, which, you know, I guess the reaction to that was we couldn't do it. Uh, And I had a prosecutor, I'm not going to tell you which state, tell me that I don't think we can build a bias-free. I don't think we can build an algorithm that doesn't increase racism in the system. Well, that's pretty scary. And so, you know, what happened in Idaho, I think the compromise was good, uh, which said that, hey, these things have got to be transparent, right? And a professor actually came in and said, I want to do the work. I'll do it for free as part of my research. I want to go test these things, but I can't get the data. So forcing the transparency was sort of the answer to that, to say, well, if we make everything open source, then we can have some objective research, not by people who are interested in the outcome, um, to determine what happened. And I think that's been a positive move. And obviously, it was supported by John Arnold of the Arnold Foundation came out and said, hey, I support this uh, because we can't have black box algorithms anymore. And the other thing it did was to say that if – 
I'm a defendant in a criminal case and I want to get discovery on the algorithm. I want to challenge the risk assessment. I want to see why it labeled me as high risk. I get to do that. Right now, there's common law uh, from the California Court of Appeals that other courts are following that says that people like John Arnold could just assert trade secret privileges within a criminal case and stop the disclosure of these. And, and so I think that was good legislation to, to take care of that issue. When we come back, we'll try to tie some loose ends together and find something at the end of the rainbow, second star on the right, and wish for the best. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. Again, it's the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Jeff Clayton, Executive Director, American Bail Coalition. Jeff, in the unfortunate lack of time we have, 18 minutes, can you begin talking about the topics of legislation and cases that you are quite interested in pursuing? Absolutely. I mean, I think legislatively, you know, and for those who don't follow state legislation, most of it's front-loaded in the first part of the year. So a lot of state legislatures will meet for, you know, a couple of months in the first part of the year, which is usually my busy time of the year. So I've been on the road pretty much all winter and spring uh, working on it. So, you know, there was... There were some attempts to, um, you know, do risk assessments statewide. We saw that in Florida. We saw that in Colorado, and that's still going on in Texas. Uh, in Colorado and Florida, they decided not to go that direction uh, to expand risk assessments statewide. Um, that's also been an issue in Ohio for the last several years. Uh, the Supreme Court is going to issue um, recommendations on that, I believe, next week uh, as to what's going to happen there, whether there'll be a statewide risk assessment. Um, there's been really no talk this year other than in Texas of changing any state constitutions to go to the no money bail system. Everybody says no money bail, but they would have to go to the system of preventative detention and, and risk assessment uh, to do that. And I think that as a movement is waning. Uh, in New York, and I think New York is, is, is fascinating on bail just because it's so different than the rest of the country. Uh, the idea that people have to post bails in open court, uh, the idea that we don't take into consideration dangerousness to the community as a factor for setting bail. In New York, it's pure, purely an appearance bond. And so when the governor's administration came out and said, yeah, we're looking at preventative detention, um, that was a non-starter. And, you know, Assemblyman Lentall interrupted me when I was testifying because uh, I was pointing out that, you know, New York since the 80s has not gone this direction of preventative detention. He pointed out that Governor Rockefeller convened a panel, you know, in 1965 to say that um, preventative detention was not a direction that New York um, wanted to go. And so what they've done now, I think, is 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 something different. Of course, you know, we sort of support the district attorneys and, and the law enforcement community saying that perhaps they went a little bit uh, you know, too far uh, in their legislation. We've seen some, uh, you know, fallout from that. But I think, you know, it's it's the, the issue is changing rapidly, even since we've been uh, discussing it. And I think the whole idea that we're going to go to this federal system, we're going to use risk assessments, we're going to use computers to decide who gets bail and who doesn't is is a concept that I think is starting to go away. Preventative detention often means in many states and communities incarceration in population. Do you feel there should be special provisos to separate people from others beyond bars? I, yeah, I do. I mean, I think, you know, you don't want your um, pre-conviction population with your post-conviction population. There's some 
suggestion, at least under federal law, and I believe this is actually in the federal code, that um, those preventatively detained in the federal system have to be separated uh, from the rest of the population. I can't remember that um, for sure. Uh, but certainly, I mean, you know, New York, I would say, you know, you probably don't want juveniles in the general population like we saw with uh, um, with Khalif Browder. Uh, but the main thing that we that you need to have if you're going to do preventative detention is speedy trial. And a lot of states don't aren't up to speed on that. You know, looking at having to try everybody that you detain within 90 days, it'd be a tall order. And a lot of states are ignoring that right now. So that's another issue that, that needs to be worked on. Do you feel that states and state governments will perhaps take longer steps and quicker steps if a series of lawsuits continues as they have been. Yeah, I think we're seeing that in Michigan right now. I mean, the, you know, the the suit against Wayne County certainly drives conversation and and, you know, fears of liability. Um, and that's what's driven a lot of this. I mean, you look at Harris County, Texas, Dallas, Texas and some of these other um, places, it has been the pressure uh, of litigation and the fact that we have really no answer to that. We can't uh, go on offense to say no uh, to try to put pressure um, on the other side. So, And a lot of times there's issues. I mean, there's right to counsel issues. They don't give them counsel. There's uh, you know time lags, as we talked about before, that are real issues. And a lot of times I read complaints and I go, if that's true, they're probably liable. Uh, and you know what do you do about that? And you know what we've tried to do is say, look, it's pretty simple to comply. And in various states, what we do is say, here's how you comply and here's how you avoid liability. And unfortunately, you know, the other side just has a big um, bankroll of litigation budget that really, and particularly, you know, in small towns and cities, they overwhelm them. And, you know, the city of Calhoun, Georgia, I think is probably, you know, one example that they're losing money on their criminal justice program. They're a town of 15,000 people and they're taking on, you know, people that are appointed by Eric Holder to to take them out. So, um, so that you know that's obviously been an issue particularly in the in these um in the small cities but litigation definitely has driven this and it'll be interesting to see if that pivots to something else like to preventative detention to the algorithms and what impact they may have are they discriminatory is there liability there i think that's probably where it's going to end up going common argument used by atheists that uh, heaven and the law are relative do you feel there is any hope in your own mind, in your own future, and where you see this going that will achieve something not ideal but near so? I do because i got to be an optimist, I guess. Uh, I, you know, pessimism is just not in my DNA. But um, as I look back just in my time, you know, I think we've made progress. And you know, like I said, the Southern Poverty Law Center wanted to beat me up. But hey, you got 48-hour review and you got that as a national standard. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing. So – you know, I think it's more brick by brick, and that's been our mentality. That's been our kind of philosophy: is that nothing that lasts is built quickly. It's always built brick by brick, meticulously and well. And those are the reforms, and those are the changes that last. And so that's what we're trying to do: is find those policy changes and tr- try to cement them so that they last. I find that I must ask you this question uh, because it's been promised of me, a former student of mine took the position, a former student who later worked on one of the Senate staffs in New York State, took the position and argues for this position on a number of university campuses that every American should experience some aspect, some iota of law school. Your response? Well, certainly the first couple of weeks were fun, a lot of parties. Uh, You know, I remember a pool party within the first... 
two weeks, so that part of it was good. The golf was fun. We used to, of course, uh, I, you know, I went to the University of Denver College of Law, and so what we would do in, in March would be to uh, be the first person on the ski lift and then come back down and play uh, 18 holes of golf. Um, so that part was also fun. But yeah, I think so. I think there's a lack of understanding or appreciation of what the law is. Uh, there's this idea that it's some scientific process, that the law always just says, well, this is how we dictate that. But really, the fight is over what the facts are. And what is uh, what actually happened is what the whole purpose of what the legal system is supposed to do is to establish what happened. I like to think of due process as a magnifying glass that we put on different parts of society to say what's going on over there, what's going on over there. And what the average American thinks is that we can put the, we can put the um, lens of due process on every case, and we can't. And so that's when you know it comes to have to the understanding that if you have a novel point of law or reason to fight, that's when you bring in the due process. Uh, but everybody assumes that, you know, all these cases could be tried and they can. And if, if we, you know, 98% of criminal cases are never tried. And if we tried them all, uh, we'd get a different result. And sometimes, you know, I think we ought to probably try some more. But then, of course, then it's, uh, you know, I'm going to give you the maximum sentence if you go to trial versus if you don't and all these issues, um, which is why people plea. So everybody should go to law school at least for one day. And hopefully that's the day when the, uh, when the cake party's going. Bring a pencil and a straw, I'm assuming. <laughs> How might people in the listening audience, and we're drawing to the end of what is always an interesting conversation with you, how might people in the audience become involved? How might they contact your organization, the website? What can they do in their own backyards? I'd go to ambailcoalition.org. We have a library of, of information. It's pretty rich, particularly on the risk assessment issues. Is Educate yourself, I think, is the, is the number one thing. And then just understand how your local um, you know, community works and look for opportunities. If you're on the reform side, say, hey, you know, the American Bail Coalition is against nuisance bail and try to define that in your community and say, yeah, we're looking at some of these cases. We just don't need bail. And, of course, we, you know, legislation passed in Colorado that we sort of, you know, took a step back on and just said we're not going to get involved in that. And that was sleeping on a park bench bails, stuff like that. So I think there's a lot of opportunity on this issue. And as you said, it's never going to end as an issue. It's always uh, a move. And, you know, one commentator said the right to bail is the right to bail till it's denied and then it's reaffirmed and then it's denied and then it's reaffirmed. And there's always a fight over that. And there has been, you know, for at least four or 500 years. So uh, it's job security, if anything, for those uh, who may want to get involved in the field. I would think that there's a market for a how-to book. And we spoke about writing and literature and what your ambitions might be, Jeff. Is there a need for such a commonplace list of things, do's and don'ts? I think so. I think so. Maybe not just on bail reform itself, but also, you know, you as a citizen, how do you influence your government? Uh, what's effective? What's not? Um, people think that going to the capital, going to the state capital, angry is going to work. And generally it doesn't. Um, but what people also don't understand is that when you're working on legislation, you're running an issue campaign on that legislation, which means you have to engage people. You have to talk to them. You have to get people networked and grassroots on your side and not only on your side, but willing to take action. Uh, and that's one of the things that we've been able to do is use sort of the Internet and the digital version of that that we were way behind on that now I think we're on the cutting edge of. 
um, which is getting people to engage, getting citizens to engage with their government. And really, our job is to either outrage them or to show them something or to give them something that tugs at the heartstrings. So they look at that, they engage in the issue, and then they take action. And what they do beyond that, you know, we don't know. But we do know that a lot of people, when they see this issue, they want to get involved and they will write letters to their um, to their legislators. And I think that's a, that's an important thing. In certain inner city and impoverished communities, there is the feeling that one does take to the streets. Would you be of the position that serves no purpose? Um, I don't know on that one. I mean, I think, you know, really these um, bad urban neighborhoods, I don't even know how you how you call them anything else. I don't I don't know. I don't live much in an urban area, but I mean, you know, something's got to be done that, that, you know, I was thinking about this last night is maybe that's just the price we pay for living in a big city is we just say, well, okay, um, we're going to allow people to, um, you know, do things that we wouldn't otherwise allow other people to do. For example, I was on the New York City subway last night and a guy uh, who probably was homeless, I don't know for sure, uh, went in between the two cars uh, and used that as the bathroom. And do we just tolerate that? Do we stop that? And then at the same time, are we missing an opportunity by not trying to help the people rather than just saying, we're going to tolerate what you're doing? We're going to make it easier for you and not as hard on you and not as harsh on you, which I think is a right humanitarian purpose. Yeah, it's somebody ensnared in the criminal justice system. We don't want to see that. That should have never happened. And so we're going to make it easier. But at the same time, can we actually do something that's going to move the ball forward you know, permanently? So, And I just don't know the answer to that. But I was thinking about that last night as I... Uh, is having a little sleepless night down there in lower Manhattan. Right and wrong is a precarious balance. When you talk about experiences and experiential moments, two nights ago I was walking through a difficult neighborhood, and it was about two in the morning, and looking about, uh, shadows become people and people become words and words become threats. Do you feel in point of fact that there is a need for individuals to realize that their voices can be heard. I'm reminded of the Mark Twain quote where he constantly had a nightmare about a man beating a donkey. And he finally asked the man, why are you beating the donkey? He said, I want him to move. And he said, well, why just don't pull on the reins? He said, first, I have to attract his attention. Have we reached the point where we need to attract the attention of the powers that be? Yeah, I'm just not sure they're paying attention is the problem. Um, You know... A good friend of mine, uh, you know, who's a prominent Democrat, has said, is our party interested in governing right now? Uh, and I would say the same thing, you know, maybe to some folks on the right, too, which is you get elected to govern. Um, you don't get elected to grandstand. You don't get elected to pad your pockets. You don't get elected to uh, someday become president. You get elected to serve your constituents. And that's the problem right now is that, you know, we're batting around, and you know, like the abortion issue. We're passing all these bills to set up a, a constitutional fight rather than saying this is what we think is the best, um, you know, public policy. So I think – you know, maybe our voices aren't being heard, but maybe what we're saying is more from the headlines more so than it is what the best public policy should be. But that's what's gotten lost. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, went got a master's in science and public policy analysis. I mean, I'm a policy wonk and it just isn't there. I mean, that's, it's just, it's a dying issue as to uh, what we want to do. And, you know, when I first started lobbying, a legislator came to me and said, I promised this group we were going to do something. And I said, well, that's fantastic. What are we going to do? And she said, well, that's where you come in, is figure it out. And I think that's 
an example of what politics has become, which is we're going to do something and we're going to make it right. We're going to make sure you hear politicians say that all the time. We're going to make sure. Well, make sure it doesn't mean anything. You have to have an actual plan to do something. And, and that's where we're, we're missing out right now. In the somewhat less than three minutes we have left, Jeff, can you give us an appraisal of your own future, your own ambitions, and mention the fact that perhaps there's a book in that future? Well, and you've certainly encouraged me that I should probably get to work on it. Yeah, I do want to tell the story of bail and bail reform and how, you know, we got here and how I feel just even, you know, my efforts and the efforts of our coalition have saved the right to bail in America. And that's an important achievement, uh, I think. Um, I'd like to do research on a lot of these issues. And um, obviously, you can't be on the road and be in the fight forever. Uh, You can't um, keep the type of travel schedule I have going forever. Uh, And so, you know, I'd like to be more in the academic space, maybe maybe at some point in the future. Um, But I just I've been working on criminal justice for so long on both sides of the issue. It really would be hard to get out of it right now. And the other thing is just you meet so many good people along the way, you know, uh, when you travel and you wake up in the morning and you say, well, I'm fighting for Eddie for Ohio and I'm fighting for, you know, Eric from California and I'm fighting for Chris from New Jersey. And, you know, you just you think of these people and you think of that their entire lives are depending on the continuation of this uh, and it's important. But so it'd be really hard to leave. But um, but, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things we could do. I'd love to be in your chair someday and maybe have my own uh, my own show. But we'll see how that goes. I would rather you be in a position to post bail for me. (laughs) (laughs) Could we uh, perhaps end with a bit of an emotional high note? Some great and wondrous thing that you remember 30 seconds worth of a story that worked. Well, the only thing that's come to mind right now that I forgot to say was, you know, Mark Twain's other famous quote is the best uh, day of the year is when the uh, legislature goes out of session. And uh, and that's what I'm feeling right now because a lot of them are starting to end. And uh, it's brightening, brightening my day and the, and the sun is shining. Okay. I think we can assume that that's not cynicism. It's not sarcasm. It's reality. I think so. And we're talking about the future as we'd like to see it. Any final thoughts? No, just really great to come out here and and be on the show again. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. This is about as far out on Long Island as I've ever been. And uh, it's a great place out here. I'm glad you enjoy it. We have running water. (laughs) (laughs) Lack of an indigenous problem, but everything is good. We thank you, Jeff Clayton, the American Bail Coalition, for being on the program. We've had you before. We'd love to have you again because you always seem to say different things and at times even say the same things in very different ways. Point of fact, our pleasure. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Robert.